You're listening to L-Town Radio, the Livingston Library Podcast. Welcome and thank you for tuning in to the December 2023 episode of L-Town Radio, the Livingston Public Library podcast. I'm Joe from the Adult Services and Acquisitions Department. Coming up in this episode, Archana will tell us about some of the great programs we have scheduled for December. Jessica will fill us in on what great new books are headed to our shelves in the month ahead. And Hong Mei will play a bit of a classic folk rock song. But first, I want to share something from our local history archive. As you may have heard, we've recently digitized a lot of materials from our local history archive, thanks to a generous grant from Library Link NJ. Materials that include audio cassettes and VHS tapes from over 50 years ago, containing interviews with members of the Livingston community, as well as episodes of a cable TV program that the library produced, circa 1976-1977, which was called Livingston Library Presents. And one of those episodes contains a very intriguing conversation between Ruth Peter and her co-worker Susan Chernis, who both worked here at the library at the time. And they talk about the work of author C.S. Lewis, who I'm sure many of you know as the author of the popular Chronicles of Narnia book series, though he also wrote a number of other lesser known but still highly esteemed works for adult audiences as well. Uh, personally, I remember being introduced to the world of Narnia over 30 years ago when I was about 10 or 11, and I was assigned to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in school, and that book just totally captured my imagination in a way that few books had before or since. And of course, today in 2023, Lewis's Narnia books are still capturing the imaginations of children here in Livingston and around the world. The books are still among the most circulated titles in our youth department, and it's been reported recently that Greta Gerwig, the director of this year's Barbie movie and uh, the 2019 adaptation of Little Women, she'll be working on a new adaptation of The Chronicles of Narnia for Netflix, Uh, which is to say that the works of C.S. Lewis are just as relevant as ever, and I was really fascinated by Ruth and Susan's conversation on this topic from nearly half a century ago. In some ways, it illuminated why his books have had such an impact on children the way they did for me back in the early 90s. But I also learned a lot about C.S. Lewis's life and about some of his other writings that I wasn't quite familiar with before. And in a nice coincidence, I actually learned earlier this morning that on this very day, that I'm recording this episode, November 29th, 2023. It happens to be the 125th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's birth. So happy birthday, C.S. Lewis, wherever you are. And to everyone else, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation between former Livingston Library staff Ruth Peter and Susan Chernis. The critic has stated that C.S. Lewis is not a major English writer, but remains a capable writer of the second rank with a limited, although authentic and unique, contribution to literature. My guest is Ruth Peter, who works in the Children and Youth Department, and she's our resident 
C.S. Lewis fan. <laughs> Ruth, the first question I think that I'd like to ask you is about C.S. Lewis himself. Can you give us a little background, biographical background of him? Well, he was born just outside of Belfast, Ireland, and his family was very intellectual. He brought up with books of all kinds in his house. His mother uh, had gone to college at a time when, you know, women didn't right. go to college, and she had a degree, and so it was a very bookish family. Mm -hmm. And um, his mother died when he was quite young, which really shook his father up. And his father really didn't know what to do, so he sent them to different, he and his brother, to various mm -hmm. schools. Um, he went around, he was not very good at school. As far as learning, he was very good, but he was not an athletic person, so in lots of ways he really hated school. He wasn't one of the popular boys. No, <laughs> to say the least. A lot of the boys picked on him because mm -hmm. I would imagine he wasn't, you know, your athletic build right. type. And um, he wasn't interested in those kinds of things. I don't think his father realized how much he really hated school mm -hmm. and he was picked on. Um, he he did go to a private tutor, I guess, after his father realized how bad it really was. And he loved that time because he was taught in his mind, very stimulated. Right. And um, from there, he uh, got a scholarship mm -hmm. to um, Oxford, I believe it was. And um, at that time, World War I broke out. And, of course, they were expected to... Right, to enlist. Enlist. And, and he was wounded mm -hmm. at that time. And when he came out, um, he went back to school, and then he got a professorship at Magdal Magdalen College there in Oxford. Also at Oxford? Right. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about his writing, he and his brother, when they were younger, had made up a fantasy land called Boxen. And he was very much into fantasy. He liked, like, Beatrice Potter, where the mm -hmm. animals talked and, you know, things came alive. Right. And his brother, as he got older, he thought that was very childish. So this was a part of C.S. Lewis's life that he tried to keep secret mm -hmm. because it wasn't very popular for a 14-year-old boy to be living in fantasy. Right. So he, he had a very hard child childhood. But... Um, as he grew up, I, he became very much an intellectual. Mm -hmm. Lewis was a novelist, essayist, literary critic, and a children's writer. And I think maybe we should start with the last one on that list, the fact that um, he did write for children, and he had always had this great love of fantasy that he kept with him. Can you tell us a little bit about the children's books that he wrote? Uh, his main children's work was the Chronicles of Narnia. It consists of seven different tales. Mm -hmm. And um, I do believe he wrote them for children that he knew. And um, the first one he wrote was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he has four children go into the land of Narnia. And... Um, it's their adventures. They're, it's like the first adventures into Narnia. Mm -hmm. The next one was Prince Caspian, and the children are called out of this world and back into Narnia, 
and they help the Narnians fight their enemies. <laughs> the voyage of the Dawn Treader, they have uh, two of the children go back, and their cousin goes with them, mm -hmm. who is um, in a progressive era, and um, he hates, he thinks this whole thing is ridiculous, and very much of a snobbish kind of person, and um, it takes him a while into the tale before he finally, you know, limbers up and mm -hmm. takes it. Then uh, there's the silver chair, and he um, is at his school, and he comes across this other girl who isn't happy there either. And I think this is part of C.S. Lewis's own reaction to his own schooling. Right, that he wasn't happy either. Right, he um, portrays the school as very, you know, harsh mm -hmm. and whatever. And the two of them go through a gate in the wall, and they rescue the prince. Um, the next one was the horse and his boy. And, the uh, horse and his boy, not the yes. boy and his horse. No, <laughs> okay. the horse and his boy. Um, there's a big thing about it because the boy in the book says, well, you're my horse. Mm -hmm. And the horse claims, well, since I can talk, why can't you be my boy? Yeah. <laughs> so it's the horse and his boy. And they save um, Narn most of the animals in Narnia are mm -hmm. quiet now. They don't talk. and. They do save Narnia from destruction. The next one is the magician's nephew. And that explains the creation of Narnia and how Narnia came into being, how it was formed, and um, the down, part of the downfall of it. And the last battle is um, the last scene of Narnia mm -hmm. and um, how it's all destroyed. And um, that was the way he wrote them. And um, from the way you can tell, if you want to read them in a different order, um, the idea that you can start with the magician's nephew and find mm -hmm. out how Narnia was created. And um, then you go on to the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And um, um, since there are seven of these books, do you recommend that they be read in a certain order or that... Um, a child approach and start with this book, then go to this one, or can they read them in any order? Well, I suppose they could read them, like, in any order. Um, I'm the kind of person who likes to read the first book first, and I think you get um, a better idea of what's going on if you mm -hmm. do read them in order, or if you read them in the chronological order, like, you know, the idea of when Narnia was made first. Right. Um, I think a child would get a better sense of what is really going on mm -hmm. rather than picking up one book and... I, if really if a child came in and the only one, let's say, that was left on the shelf was Prince Caspian. So mm -hmm. that's one of the titles, yes. right? <laughs> <laughs> um, would he or she have trouble understanding what was going on? I don't think so. He gives um, a small introduction as mm -hmm. to, you know, who the characters are and that um, they've been in the land before. And um, there is a small introduction. I think they would get a, enough of an idea so that they could read the book and know what was going right. on. Uh, some criticism has been made that in these Narnian tales, there are animals that talk, there are animals that don't mm -hmm. talk. Do you think children find it hard to relate to this like supernatural atmosphere where you have talking animals and not talking animals and good ones and bad ones and everything? <laughs> well. I don't think they do, because children are so, a lot of children, let's put it that way, mm -hmm. um, are into fantasy. A lot of picture books, the animals do talk. 
um, they they carry on natural kind of things, you know. Right. And I think once they get into these, they're they're used to an animal talking. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they can tell the the bad ones from the good ones. Um, the good ones do good things, right. and the bad ones, you I'm know, really bad. bad. <laughs> so they know that you know this is one that you know, isn't so good. Right. I mean, this one is pretty good. You know, he knows what, he, mm -hmm. what he's doing. I don't think they would have really too much trouble understanding yeah. that. I know that C.S. Lewis dealt with this theme of good and evil and uh, morality throughout all of his work. And in his adult writings, it's certainly right, right there. Is this also true for his children's literature that there's this underlying theme of good versus evil and yes there is um you find out that when in the lion the witch in the wardrobe edmund goes into narnia mm -hmm. and um lucy has been there before them and nobody believes him well he goes in and the wicked witch has him under her spell and he does some really mean kind of things <laughs> and um I think I think in that respect they, they do have that good and, and bad. You mm -hmm. know, um, uh, the witch is bad. She has. Um, it's always winter, but never quite Christmas. Um, you know, <laughs> it's spring just never comes. Right. And um, there's really nothing to look forward to. And she is bad. And of course, when the the children come and the story moves on, mm -hmm. um, the lion comes, Aslan comes, and all of a sudden, you know, the snow starts to melt and the flowers come. And there, there is that good and evil even in in the children's tales. Yeah, I I don't think there's any way to discuss C.S. Lewis without at least mentioning the fact that religion and his religion was very important to him. It influenced every facet of his life, and mm -hmm. certainly his writing. And I, I think it's true even in the Narnian tales, mm -hmm. right? Mm, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, do you think that that would bother children or that maybe they would read this and say, there's something here I don't understand? Well, I think if um, the children are aware, you know, um, if someone points it out to them, mm -hmm. I think they could see it. But I think they can read it on a pure fantasy level and not even realize that point at all. Um, I think for an adult reading it, um, most of them would pick it up yeah. and, and realize what he's saying. But I think a child, unless they're made aware of it or they're conscious themselves in that kind of thing, they, they might not pick it up. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have adults requesting to read the Narnian tales? Heaven. <laughs> we'll hear more of Ruth and Susan's conversation in a moment, but first let's take a short break to hear from Archana about some of the great programs we have scheduled for December. Hello listeners, and greetings for the holiday season. I would like to highlight three great lecture-style programs that are coming up in the last month of 2023. Now, 2023 has marked the 50th anniversary of the death of Pablo Ruiz Picasso, the artistic genius born in Malaga, Spain, at the beginning of the 20th century. Throughout the year, exhibitions, initiatives and events have been held around the world to commemorate his life and work. 
Here at the Livingston Library, we too will celebrate the life and artistic legacy of Picasso on Monday, December 24th at 7pm. Join speaker Janet Mandel to learn about the life and works of the 20th century's true artistic genius who recorded his vision of this tumultuous century via his passion for avant-garde art, beautiful women and original ideas. You will discover Picasso's inexhaustible creativity and explore his unique life as revealed through beautiful images of his major paintings and sculptures. We move on to Lee Miller, an American photographer and photojournalist who challenged her contemporary ideas of gender, beauty or age. Often recognized as a model and a muse to several great artists, including Picasso, Man Ray and Jean Cocteau, Miller was a fiercely independent artist, photographer, actor and one of the very few war correspondents credentialed during World War II. She was a fashion model in New York City in the 1920s before going to Paris, where she became a fashion and fine art photographer. During the Second World War, she was a war correspondent for Vogue, covering events such as the London Blitz, the liberation of Paris, and the concentration camps at Buchenwald and Dachau. Almost forgotten for, men, for many years and overshadowed by male artists, her work has currently begun to get due recognition. A movie titled Lee, directed by Ellen Kouras and starring Kate Winslet as Lee Miller, based on the recently released book The Lives of Lee Miller by her son Anthony Penrose, and a copy of which is on order for the library, it is set to premiere at the 2023 Toronto International Film Festival on 9th September. On December 27th at 7pm, the library presents Lee Miller from fashion model to war photographer. This illustrated talk presented by Joanna Madlock We'll cover her biography from her unconventional childhood and youth to her unorthodox marriage and family relations. However, it concentrates mostly on her development as a photographer who confronted both societal and artistic norms of her time. Madlock's visual presentation of Miller's work offers the participants a comprehensive review of the photographer's style and achievements. It'll pay special attention to the discovery of Miller's work and a transformation into a popular icon, a character featured in historical fiction and even a heroine of a musical. Our last lecture for December is based around a movie released in 1946 that has been a holiday staple on TV for generations. And you guessed right if you, thought, if you think of It's a Wonderful Life. When actor James Stewart and director Frank Capra returned from serving in World War II, they chose It's a Wonderful Life to restart their holiday careers collaborating with some of the best talents in the industry. So they were shocked when this film proved to be a critical and commercial failure. Why did Olivia de Havilland refuse to be cast in this movie? And what eventually turned this almost forgotten film into a beloved December mainstay? How did this box office flop become a Christmas classic? On December 11th at 7pm, Entertainment historian John Kendrick takes us behind the scenes for the making of this inspiring film, examining its surprising evolution into an annual must-see. This talk includes clips of the most iconic moments as well as information on behind-the-scenes battles during the filming. Join us as we celebrate this holiday season by recalling a movie that unforgettably affirms the value of life. We hope you will choose to spend one of these evenings in the library for these enlightening talks. Thank you. Thank you, Archana. 
And now, here's part two of Susan Chernus's interview with Ruth Peter, where they discuss the lesser-known adult works of C.S. Lewis. Well, C.S. Lewis did write fiction for adults, and uh, according to critic Chad Walsh, in the two decades following 1942, when the Screwtape Letters came out, C.S. Lewis had an impact upon American religious thinking and imagination, which has, quote, rarely, if ever, been equaled by any other modern writer. And at least half a dozen of Lewis's more imaginative books, Walsh predicts, will assume a position among the classics of religious literature. Um, the first of these was the screw tape letters, and I think they've been a hit ever since. <laughs> so, were th are these actual letters? Is that what this book is? No. Uh, he has uh, written a group of letters. Um, screw tape writes to Wormwood, mm -hmm. and uh, Wormwood is a junior tempter. A junior tempter? tempter. Yes. And Screwtape is the undersecretary of the department, and he tries to teach Wormwood how to tempt people to do to do bad. Mm -hmm. And um, it's letters of advice, um, sort of the wrong kind of <laughs> advice, but how he can get you know his quote patient right. to do bad. And uh, so they're not really actual letters, mm -hmm. but. Um, like you say, they're very interesting. It's it's basically the old theme of trying to get someone to sell his soul, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the book has always been very popular, mm -hmm. I know, and um, it's short and easy to read. Yeah, I would think you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it gets its point across very quickly, too, yes. what he's trying to do. Well, shortly before Screwtape Letters came out, the first one in the science fiction trilogy came out, and this was um, Out of the Silent Planet. Mm -hmm. So, want to tell us a little bit about that one? Okay. Um, a Dr. Ransom takes a walk, and he stumbles upon um, Dr. Weston, mm -hmm. and, um, oh, yes, I was going to say doc Dr. Divine, but that's... Dick uh, Divine. <laughs> um, yeah, Dick Divine, mm -hmm. and they go to Mars. And um, because the, and they're not animals, but the creatures on Mars have asked for another person from, from Earth. And he gets very scared and he runs off and he lives with these people and he becomes, uh, realizes their sense of values. Mm -hmm. And um, by freakness, they make it home safely. Of course, um, Weston and Divine have thought that they want to, like, a sacrifice because they don't understand right. these creatures at all. And, of course, they don't. They want to find out about the silent planet, which is the Earth. Mm -hmm. And um, Why is Earth the silent planet? Um, well, when Earth was made, um, you find that evil has ta overtaken the Earth. And there's no communication with the Earth, with the other um, planets, and they call them the Edels. And um, the evil Edels here on the Earth are not communicating with the other ones in the, you know, space and the other planets. Right. And uh, so they want to find out what Earth is really like. And the only way they can do this is, like, to, to talk to, like, Earthlings. Mm -hmm. And um, they call the Earth and the silent planet. 
This ends with Ransom's return to Earth right. from mm -hmm. Mars. Mm -hmm. Then the second one is Perlandra. Right. And Ransom is summoned off again into yes. space. Yes. What happens to him this time? Okay. He goes and um, the Edels have taken him to Perlandra or Venus. Mm -hmm. And um, Weston has gotten there on his own. And um, it's the case of. Um, formation of a new world and um, you find that Weston wants this queen to do things that she has been told not to and um, Ransom is the other argument you know don't do it do what you've been told and it's the creation of a new world and um, the one is trying to get her to do evil and the other is trying to keep mm -hmm. this world a pure world it sounds like the uh, old Adam and Eve story. Yes, it's very <laughs> much like that. And um, the, um, in this story, Weston is killed down underneath and Ransom has been brought up. And um, unlike the Adam and Eve story, mm -hmm. um, in this case, pure wins over and it remains a, you know, an untouched world mm -hmm. and Ransom is brought home again here to the earth is transported here to earth okay and then the third one is that hideous strength right which takes us further into the adventures of Dr. Ransom yes um, except at first you don't know him as Dr. Ransom and um, you find that um, this organization called the NICE mm -hmm. is trying to take over and um, they do all very scientific kind of things. It's almost like a, um, a futuristic story of Earth and how they try to demolish nature, that kind of thing. And um, here again you have Ransom um, with a small group of people trying to keep the nice from taking over the Earth. Mm -hmm. Who wins? Oh, wow. <laughs> I should say you have to read the book to find I guess out. so. <laughs> no, he does. Uh, Ransom wins. Okay, well, that's good to know after all. <laughs> can, and also, like with the Narnian tales, these can be read separately? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think they could be read easier separately than the, the Narnia tales. Mm -hmm. And people don't have trouble following what's going on? I wouldn't on. think so. Mm -mm. Well, the plots of, of the first two sound very science fiction-y. I mean, here's Dr. Ransom going off to these planets, you know, and meeting strange creatures and everything. But the third one takes place on Earth, and it's mm -hmm. more like a, a thriller. Can, can they be read just on this level, you know, ignoring what, whatever underlying themes there are? Or do you think it just jumps out at you, what Lewis is doing? Well, I would imagine that you could read it, you know, just to read it as a thriller. But I think most people would um, pick up the, the theme mm -hmm. of, you know, your good and evil and, you know, this kind of thing. Um, I would imagine most people would pick that up. Um, but, you know, you could go through and read it very surfacely and just pick it up here and there mm -hmm. you know, instead of delving in to find out all the symbolisms or, or whatever. Do you think that would turn readers off, the fact that, that there are these themes that run through the whole trilogy? Um, 
I would think if people are not involved and, you know, um, if they want a light book to read, mm -hmm. this would not be the book to pick up to read. Um, if they're, they want a little stimulation, this would be the kind of thing to pick yeah. up to read. We'll hear the conclusion of Ruth and Susan's conversation in just a moment. But first, let's take a short break and welcome Hong Mei, who'll share a bit of a classic folk rock tune. During our break time today, let's enjoy a song, The Sound of Silence, sung by American music duo Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, written by Paul Simon. It was a top 10 hit in multiple countries worldwide. The song was included in 1964 on the album Wednesday Morning 3 a.m. It was featured in the 1967 film The Graduate. Hello darkness, my old friend I've come to talk with you again because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence In restless dreams I walked alone Streets of cobblestone, beneath the halo of a street lamp, I turn my collar to the cold and damp. When my eyes were stabbed Thank you very much, Hong Mei. Now, before we get back to Ruth and Susan, here's Jessica to fill us in on what great new books are headed to our shelves in the month ahead. Hello, L-Town Radio listeners. Are you just as excited for new books as we are? Here is a small sampling of the new books that you can look forward to borrowing from the library this December. Please note that descriptions are taken from the publisher. What Really Happens in Vegas by James Patterson, December 4th. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Until now, James Patterson shows the real Vegas in a dazzling journey through true stories of excess drama and hope. Polaris and Miss Paula by Melissa Rivero, December 5th. A rare, tender novel about a Peruvian immigrant mother and a millennial daughter who have one final chance to find common ground. Frozen River by Ariel Lawhon, December 5th. From the New York Times bestselling author of I Was Anastasia and Codename Helene comes a gripping historical mystery inspired by the life and diary of Martha Ballard, a renowned 18th century midwife who investigates a shocking murder that unhinges her small community. The Other Mothers by Catherine Faulkner, December 5th. The author of the twisty fast-paced Greenwich Park returns with a freshly and deftly paced thriller about murder, class, and motherhood in an exclusive London community. Wonder of It All by Barbara Taylor Bradford, December 5th. From New York Times bestselling author Barbara Taylor Bradford comes a long-awaited final novel in the House of Faulkner trilogy. The Lost Tomb by Douglas Preston, December 5th. 
Douglas Preston, the number one best-selling author of The Lost City of the Monkey God, presents a jaw-dropping true story of Egyptian burial chambers, prehistoric ruins, pirate treasure, bizarre crimes, and more. Ruthless Vows by Rebecca Ross, December 26th, the epic conclusion to the intensely romantic and beautifully written story that started in Divine Rivals. Which of these titles are you looking forward to reading the most? We can't wait to see you at the library. Thank you as always, Jessica. And now here's the conclusion of Ruth and Susan's talk on C.S. Lewis, where they touch on his fascination with joy, as well as his friendship with fellow fantasy writer J.R.R. Tolkien. One word that C.S. Lewis uses in all of his writing, I mm -hmm. think, is, is the word joy. And it seems to have a special meaning for him. Mm -hmm. What is it? You know, I mean... Okay, when he was younger, he counted joy as being out and um, seeing the leaves and smelling the, the, the soil right after mm -hmm. it's rained and... Um, you know, the freshness of everything. And um, as he grew older, he had moments where he had this inner joy, this inner peace. And he tried to constantly capture this. And he just couldn't. And um, it wasn't until he, he went to teach that um, he came in contact with several men and um, they confronted him with how he could have this joy all the time. And um, he um, said he went on a walk one day, and when he came back, he just knew that he had this joy in him, and that was that was it. And he knew that he could carry this joy all the time, mm -hmm. and that's his theme on a, on a joy. <laughs> <laughs> because I've noticed in his books he, the the joy of discovery, or even the joy of terror. That there's a certain mm -hmm. thrill when his characters get into very tight <laughs> situations. And he will refer to this as a certain kind of joy, which mm -hmm. I don't think the, the average person ha makes that association with that word, and yet he did. Yeah, I could see that, where he, he was searching, you know, when he was growing up for this joy, and he'd only capture moments of mm -hmm. this joy. So I could see where he would instill into his characters, you know, a moment of a joy kind of thing. Um, and depending on the character, whether it was a joy and a terror, right. or a joy in a really um, good sense. I can see where he... He, he did write um, other types of works, though. Mm -hmm. What else did he... I mean, we have his fiction, but were there other things that he went into? Um, he has written a book called Mere Christianity, and it's his argument for mm -hmm. Christianity. And um, he also wrote a book, The Four Loves, the different types of loves that, you know, he sees in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I know he's written God in the Dock, God in the Dock, and um, more of a philosophical kind mm -hmm. of books. And he also wrote um, articles for magazines, that kind of thing. So it's a broad range that yes, he covered. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Was he friendly with other authors of that time in England? Yes, I found it very interesting. I hadn't realized, but when I first started being interested in C.S. Lewis, that he was um, very friendly with uh, Tolkien. 
and uh, mutual love affair. Yes. <laughs> and he and two or three others, um, and there's a George McDonald, and mm -hmm. two or three other of the writers had gotten together and formed their own like literary society. But I had thought it was very interesting that here Tolkien had written the Hobbit, the Hobbit and his right. trilogy, and here C.S. Lewis and you know his fantasies, and that they were very quite close friends. Yes. Do you think they influenced each other in, in the writing? I think that they found it was very exciting to find someone else who enjoyed, as an adult, fantasy. Right. I, you know, I don't imagine there's a lot of people who would enjoy sitting down and writing, you know, real fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I think the two of them must have been very excited together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, C.S. Lewis died in 1963. Mm -hmm. And um, I think he's still fairly widely read today. I think his literature has survived up until now very well. Do you think it'll go on that way? Do you think people will continue to read him? I think so. Um, in the children's room, you know, the chronicles are out almost all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a case where, um, you know, older brother tells, you know, he yeah. says, you've got to read this. And, um, of course, if they're hooked on it, they try to get, you know, younger brothers and sisters mm -hmm. hooked on it. And therefore, it goes right on down the line, you right. know. They grow up and they probably would encourage their children to read it because they enjoyed it as children. And um, I think he will be continued to be read, um, both on child's level and the Chronicles, mm -hmm. and also on the um, adult level. Um, because he, he has a lot to say, and I think it pertains to each age as it comes along, right. you know, it's um, not something that after a while can be just shelved, you know, it's yeah, still you, pertinent. You don't outgrow him in any way. I don't think so. I think you can reread him. Of course I would. <laughs> For more than 40 years, C.S. Lewis produced imaginative literature as well as essays and literary criticism. I know that You've been one of his biggest fans here in the library. I hope you will continue to be read. And Ruth, I'd like to thank you for being with us today. Well, it looks like Ruth was right on the money in her prediction there at the end. And I think readers of all ages are richer that C.S. Lewis's works are still so popular all these years later. Again, that was Susan Chernis of the Livingston Public Library interviewing her co-worker Ruth Peter from an episode of the library's late 70s cable TV show Livingston Library Presents. You can watch that episode along with many more hours of video footage from our local history archive on our website now. And to tell us more about our local history collection, including a special local history event that we are hosting in December, once again, here's Jessica. Did you know that the Livingston Public Library has a physical and digital local history collection? You can visit the library's digital local history collection on the library's website at www.livingstonlibrary.org. From here you can view full-length digitized copies of the Livingston High School yearbooks, historical issues of the Tribune, and so much more. Recently added to the collection are oral history recordings and video recordings showing the library and community from the 1970s. 
The library's physical local history room also has a wealth of resources, including print copies of Livingston's yearbooks and numerous photos of local interest. We invite you to join us for a local history room open house on December 5th from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Drop into the local history room to explore this wonderful collection. This digitization project is supported by funds from the Library Link NJ as part of the Level Up Your Library mini grant program. We hope to see you there. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of L-Town Radio. Thank you to Jessica and Archana and Hong Mei for your contributions. And of course, thank you, listener, for tuning in. We're going to take a month off from podcasting here at the library, but we will be back with a new episode at the end of January 2024. And I hope you'll tune in again then. Remember, you can listen to and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media over at Facebook, on Instagram, and on YouTube. You can read our daily blog at livingstonlibrary.org blog. And you can visit our main website, livingstonlibrary.org, where you can search our catalog, browse our events calendar, or use many, many of our digital resources 24 hours a day. Of course, we're also open seven days a week for all your librarying needs. So I hope you'll come down and see us in person as well. And until next time, stay curious, everybody.